0: Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 9.30 to worship with us we'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the Church of Jesus Christ say, Do not fear. Al-Tirah in Hebrew. Mephobu in Greek. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Quite often, when God shows up before humans, whether by dream or vision, in disguise as an angel, in dramatic clouds and earthquakes, or through the sanctified preaching of a prophet, the very first instruction to the people encountering God's divine presence is simply, do not fear. Abraham was told by God in a dream not to be afraid, but to go. An angel told wandering, starving Hagar not to be afraid, but to trust. God appeared to Isaac and said, Do not be afraid, but know I am with you. God appeared to Jacob when hope was nearly lost and told him not to be afraid, but to move his family to Egypt. Moses told a cowering people at the seaside not to be afraid, but to stand firm and watch their salvation unfold. Again, with God descending to Mount Sinai, Moses told the people, Do not be afraid, but be faithful. God tells the Israelites repeatedly not to fear the strength of their enemies, but to trust God to make a home for his homeless, wandering children. The psalmist proclaimed with the Lord on my side, I do not fear what can mortals do to me. The prophets constantly appeal to the people of God not to be afraid, but to have courage, to take faith, To trust God. God makes his direct appeal through these prophets, saying again and again, Do. Not. Fear. In the New Testament, the priest Zechariah was told by an angel of God not to be afraid, but to pay attention. Mary was told by an angel of God not to be afraid, but to take her part in God's history-making salvation. Joseph was told not to be afraid, but to get hitched. Shepherds were told by angels not to be afraid, but to celebrate and witness the birth of good news of great joy. Our Lord Jesus told his followers not to be afraid, but to know their value in God's eyes. Jesus later told some scared disciples in a boat not to be afraid, but to know that he can calm the seas and walk on the waters. Jesus tells Peter, James, and John not to be afraid as the glory subsided in the aftermath of transfiguration. The angel at the tomb tells the women not to be afraid, but to believe the mystery of Christian faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen, and you shall see him again. God appeared to the Apostle Paul in a vision and said, Do not be afraid, but speak. The risen Christ appeared to the writer of Revelation, and his appearance was so terrifying the writer fell down as if dead. But Jesus said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And he said, Do not, be, do not fear what you are about to suffer, but instead be faithful. Do not fear. Al tira me fobu. Do not be afraid. It's something of a refrain in the scriptures, isn't it? It's a refrain that we need to hear over and over and over again, I suspect. I need to be told again and again not to be afraid, because my knee-jerk reaction to the terror of this world is not to take courage or to exhibit a profound trust in God, but instead it is to be fearful. Like the disciples cowering in the boat in the midst of the storm, quite often my greatest and strongest belief is that Jesus has fallen asleep and doesn't appear to care that we are drowning here. In the midst of crisis or loss or pain or longing, with heartache as our closest companions, and the ever-present presence of death in our world, it is profoundly difficult to know what to do with the biblical refrain to not be afraid. Church, with a seminary degree and ordination certificates on my wall, I'm here to tell you it is difficult to know how to hear, receive, and obey the biblical command to not be afraid afraid. I have seen well-intentioned Christians post notes that say things like faith over fear as an excuse to justify foolish behavior during this pandemic. Remember that the devil tempted our Lord Christ with this exact temptation. Faith over fear, Jesus. Just Jump off the temple, surely God won't let you die. And what did Jesus say? How did Christ answer the tempter? Do not put God to the test. Chanting faith over fear and then acting recklessly isn't embodying a biblical injunction not to be afraid, church. It's just being foolish. It's difficult to know how we're supposed to endure suffering and pain or to encounter the presence of violence or injustice or turmoil in this world and not somehow be worried a bit. Fear is a natural human reaction to chaos and disorder. Fear is the sneaking suspicion that there is no one at the helm of this world and that our ship is headed straight For the iceberg. Fear whispers to us and tells us that we don't matter very much in the economy of this world, that we are expendable and worth little. Fear cynically informs us that our society is helpless and hopeless and not really worth making much of an effort to try to reform or change or renew. Fear collapses our imaginations, it chains up our dreams, it tells us we should only trust what we can know ourselves, and that we should only know what we can completely understand. Fear terraforms our souls into self-centered, me-first places of despair that have no room for empathy, or for compassion, or for sacrificial love. Nadia boltz Weber puts it this way. She says, fear disguises itself in so many ways as greed, hate, isolation, addiction, the list is endless. But in the end, fear is at the root of all of it. And while you and I might not be murderous tyrants, none of us are free from the effects of fear in our lives. It keeps us isolated And small, and then she says this, it steals away joy and possibility. But the Bible says, do not fear. It says, do not be afraid. Indeed, no matter the form that fear takes in our lives personally, we Each of us here in worship, each of us participating today are all affected by fear to some degree. And so as fearful people, we come back again to these texts, these commands from Scripture to not be afraid. And we've got to wonder just a little bit, what does it possibly mean to not be afraid when every possible metric in our lives is inspiring terror within us? that we haven't felt in a long time. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. In the time that's left to me today, I want to begin in answer to the question, what enables us to turn from fear? We might never be able to conquer it, We might never be able to get rid of it forever, but I think there are realities about God that enable us to turn aside from fear, to blunt its sharp edge, and to find ourselves freed a bit from its impulsive terror. And today, I want to use the reading from the prophet Isaiah chapter 43 as my primary text. If you'd like, You can grab a blue pew Bible and you can open it to Isaiah chapter 43. And if you don't know where Isaiah is, that's okay. Just open your Bible up about halfway and start moving slowly to the right. You'll find Isaiah in no time. In Isaiah 43, we find the raw materials by which we might construct a better understanding of what it means to not be afraid but to lean upon the Lord. I say raw materials because Isaiah 43 offers to us not one little neat moral injunction. There are no little go-and-do-this exercises that will keep us From being afraid. Instead, Isaiah 43 gives us eight dramatic statements about who God is. Eight character traits about God that are held up for us as essential information we need to know about the God we claim to believe in. And if we can grasp on to these eight statements, if we can trust these things that are said about God are in fact true, Then, and only then, can we find our way to a life that turns aside from fear. Eight statements about God that reveal a bit about God's identity. Eight characteristics of God that, through the prophet Isaiah, God thought were absolutely essential for the exiled people of God to know as they wandered. As they wondered how much longer they would have to live in exile in a foreign land. I've never preached an eight-point sermon, so I'm going to go fast. Are you ready? Okay. First, God creates. Look at verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. He who created you. The Hebrew word here is bara. It's used only to describe God's creative work in the Bible. It is never used to describe what humans do. It is only used to describe God. It is the very first word of the entire Bible. And it is the very first in the outset of today's passage God creates, God makes. God brings things into being, and God does not create junk. What God makes, God loves, and that includes you. The first leg in this eight-point structure is that God is the creator of all things. The second God shapes, or forms. Same verse, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who what, formed you, O Israel, do not fear, I've redeemed you, I've called you by name, you are mine. The Hebrew word here is yetzer. It's a word used to describe the work of potters shaping vessels out of clay. Not only does God create the raw materials that make you You, but God also forms and shapes and molds you into something beautiful. But more importantly, God did not just create this world and then walk away, leaving it on its own. But God, by using this word, tells us he is still seated at the potter's wheel. He is still reforming, reshaping, repairing this broken creation. The second leg in this structure is that God shapes, God forms. Third, God redeems. Again, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you. By name you are mine. The Hebrew word here is ga'el. It's the word used to describe the way God steps in between us and our bondage to sin and death and hell and rescues us. In the ancient Hebrew world, If a woman's husband died and she had no immediate family, she would often become destitute, having no access to resources or provision, and perhaps she would become indebted or enslaved as a result. So the law provided for a distant relative to become a kinsman redeemer for her, to ensure that the widowed woman would be, in fact, provided for, have her debts, Paid and that her property would pass down to her children. And in invoking this word in this time in Isaiah, God is essentially saying to his people, I will step in and ensure that you have a future. I will pay your debts and I will relieve your burden. I have redeemed you, God says in this verse. It is done. The third leg in this structure is that God redeems fourth God calls again verse 1 but now thus says the lord he who created you o jacob he who formed you o israel do not fear i have redeemed you i have Call. called you and also in verse 7 i will say bring everyone who is Called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The Hebrew word here is karah. It's a word used to recite or to read aloud or to proclaim. And not only does Isaiah 43 say that God calls us. What does it say here in verse 1? Call by by my name. Yeah, sure. But I'm thinking here, I've called you by my name name. God doesn't just know us anonymously, but God calls you and me by name, which tells us that we are known by God, that our lives are not lived out apart from God's knowledge, and that our deepest fears and terrors are also known by God. God calls us by name and says that we, all of us, Belong to Him. The fourth leg is that God calls us by name. Fifth, God loves. Verse 4 says this You are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. Ahavti, God says. The word for love is used throughout Scripture. To describe the way God cares for the created world and its inhabitants, it is a provocative word to imagine a God loving what he has made and not just merely fancied by it. God is committed to the things that his word has produced. This word love implies not just sacrifice or intimacy or care, but it also invokes ideas of communion and covenant, of obligation, the way that we put ourselves in loving obligation to one another. God loves what God has made. The fifth leg is that God loves. The sixth leg is that God gathers. Look at verse 5 here. It says, Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. God is not content to just let the chips fall where they may. Let the wind blow us where it will. We'll just all see each other in the end. God is active in the life of his people, bringing people back, gathering people in. I love this image of God bringing people from the east and from the west, gathering them up. This is not an, an inactive word. It is an active, searching word. It is the word that Jesus is going to reference when he talks about the shepherd going after the one sheep who had wandered far from the fold. God is going after his people, you and me, and gathering us, bringing us back. The sixth leg is that God gathers. The seventh leg is God speaks. In verse 1 and 6, we read this, thus says the Lord. And then God says in verse 6, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the end of the earth. We serve a loquacious God, a God who loves to speak. As Reformed Christians, we believe that whenever we gather around the scriptures in the midst of worship, whenever we read them aloud to one another, whenever we preach on them, whenever we have occasion to ponder them alongside each other, God is at work speaking, not just in ancient words that are written in a book, but in living words which divide truth from lie and which separate our very souls. God is a living, active speaker in this world. God has not ceased his speech. We have only become used to not paying attention. Scriptures remind us that God speaks and God commands. The final leg of this structure is that God goes with. Look at verse 2 and verse 5. Verse 2 says, When you pass through the waters, and verse 5 says, Do not fear, for I am with you. And his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And at the end of the book of Revelation, behold, the dwelling of God is now with us mortals. We do not worship and praise a God who is content to create and then abdicate. We do not, we are not content to worship a being who could make us and then depart from us. We are worshiping and loving and centering our lives around a being who creates and then goes with us. And not just when things are looking good, but into every dark valley into every terror-filled moment, into every period of uncertainty or anguish. The God that we praise here is the God we believe is journeying with us. God goes with us. And taken together, these eight statements about God circumscribe the character of God that is at the center of our worship, of our faith, of every hymn we sing and prayer we utter. God is a creating, shaping, redeeming, calling, loving, gathering, speaking, companioning God. These eight statements set out a brief creed of sorts to the people of God in exile. Like amid the existential fear surrounding us, amid the terror that they might be the last generation of their people to survive, amid the fear that the people of Israel held a better armed, better equipped, better resourced empires, amid the fear of military losses, the destruction of their whole religious identity, and the ending of the line of their kings. Just when things felt At their most grim, God announces himself to his people by describing his character in these eight ways. And if God is, in fact, the God who does all these things, if God is the God who can fabricate an entire universe and form and shape people out of the ground, and if God can redeem a people from the evils of this world, and if God can call them by name and love them and gather them, and if God can speak to them and journey with them, then the only possible response is for them to not be afraid. Do not fear, God says to the people in Isaiah 43. Not once. He says it twice. Do not be afraid. Verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, Do not fear. And again, In verse 5, do not fear, for I am with you. This is who I am, God says. And, And now I say to you, my exiled, weary, fearful people, the time for terror is past. Look at me, God says. Look at who I am. Remember what I have done, and look at what I will yet do. And therefore, do not be afraid. These eight statements form a delightful shape, uh, a shield, as it were, something that permits us to reject fear as a norm and a given and instead to embrace something deeper, something much more rich and rewarding. For in believing these things about God, we find ourselves hemmed in on all sides. We are Unable to experience any sorrow that Christ our Savior does not also share. Unable to be found in any place unknown to the God who gathers up and brings his children home. We are now unable to be in any state of existence wherein we are unloved by God. And that there is now nothing that we can do to be somehow unknown by God or considered unworthy. Of redemption. We are part of a creation whose beginning and whose ending is found in the same being. And the God whose love and word began the entire universe has never stopped loving and speaking and has promised to journey with us when the waters look deep and the flames look treacherous. These eight statements about God in Isaiah 43 form actually the perimeter of Christian faith. They establish the outer shape of what it means to be a person who follows after Jesus with our whole lives. For we believe that in Jesus Christ we see all of these character traits of God enacted, embodied, and in flesh. In Jesus, God was creating a new people, shaping a new family, redeeming a sinful world, calling us again by name, loving us even unto death, gathering us up from our graves, speaking to us as one of us, and going with us as God with us. And so if these things are true, then what can we fear? How could we possibly wonder if this world is just on autopilot, headed for a fiery crash? If these things are true, how can we possibly wonder if God has abandoned us, even when things look grim? Our only response to these statements is to renew our faith in the promises of the one who alone is faithful and true. But these eight statements remind me of another important Shape church. It reminds me of our baptismal font. For here at this font, we pass our children through the waters and we present them to God for his keeping. And care. Here we celebrate the promises of God made known to us in Jesus and we claim those promises on behalf of our sons and daughters. Here we see the power of God to create and to form and to redeem and to call and to love and to gather and to speak and to go with us. And here in the waters of baptism we rediscover our truest vocation. Do not fear for I am with you. Passing through these waters does not make life easy, nor does it make our journey through this world uncomplicated by sorrow or pain. But here we are reminded that even though the waters look deep, even though the flames look terrifying, even though we may get wet and singed in this life, our entire being is held by the God who made us, who redeemed us, and who is with us even now. Here at this font, we move from fear to joy. Not happiness, not perfection, not bliss, not wealth, not painless living, but to joy. For here, we are reminded that our identity, our faith, our trust is firmly rooted outside ourselves, for we belong not to nations or families or skin colors, we belong not to political parties or ideologies, we belong not to economic classes or societal hierarchy, we belong not to ourselves or to our sins or to our addictions, we belong to the creating, forming, redeeming, calling, loving, gathering, speaking, and companioning God and we always have. Today the word to the church is do not fear. Do not be afraid. So we can rise up from this font, and we can love our neighbors. We can work on behalf of the oppressed. We can speak up for those experiencing injustice. We can defend the cause of the widow. We can plead the case of the orphan. We can prepare food for the hungry and give water to the thirsty and clothing to the naked. We can weep with those who weep and laugh with those who rejoice. We can do these things because that is exactly what the God who is with us in Jesus Christ is doing already. And somewhere between believing these things about God and living them out in tangible ways, we will find ourselves set free from fear and ready to be, say, and do whatever it is God is calling us to do. Church, I speak to you on this baptism of Christ Sunday in the name of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let the church say,